Very good morning, Amokil family. Now we continue our sermon series on the kingdom of God. Let us pray first as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, as well as the actions of all our lives, be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now today's scripture text is taken from Luke chapter 14. It has many similarities to Luke chapter 13, where our local preacher Isaac preached last week about how God's kingdom brings about a divide. And this divide is absolute. You are either in or out. There is no middle ground. You see, we are already living in the last days. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 warns us, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itchy ears, itching ears want to hear. You know what we really want to hear are statements like, God will not judge us, we don't have to repent, everyone will be saved, once saved, always saved. Now these are the messages that our itching ears would want to hear, very much prefer to hear them. Unfortunately, that is not what Jesus teaches. What we get in scripture over and over again is the repeated warning not to ever take things for granted, that we must always choose God's ways. And friends, can I say to you, the very first step in choosing God's ways is repentance. Repentance. Let's look at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, Jesus is basically teaching here that just because some people died tragically, doesn't mean that they are more guilty of certain sins. Instead, Jesus is saying and reminding everyone, unless we all too repent, we too will also perish. And here's the thing about us, you know, in our worldly thinking, in our human way of thinking, we think that there is some kind of ranking of sins. Maybe murder is 10 upon 10, the worst sin ever. Adultery, 9 upon 10. But if I just tell a lie, 1 upon 10. That's from our earthly point of view, from God's heavenly point of view, when he looks down at us, every sin is a blot. And that's why every sin needs to be ruthlessly dealt with from God's point of view, because a little yeast corrupts the whole. And therefore, point number one for today's sermon is simply this. Jesus makes no apologies in asking for repentance. Jesus makes no apologies in asking us to repent. And then Jesus goes on in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 13 about a man who was looking for his fig tree to bear fruit, but he wasn't doing so. He wanted to cut it down immediately, but the caretaker said, give it one more year. And so the owner said, okay, sure, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then I will cut it down. And so the second point that Jesus is making, and making no apologies here, is that he expects fruits in keeping with repentance. We must bear fruits in line with our confession of our repentance. Again, I remind all of us as Methodists, the general rules of our society designed by John Wesley 
are precisely, you know, written with these warnings in mind. Three times Wesley writes, it is expected of all who continue in these societies, that is Methodist societies, that they shall continue to evidence their desire of salvation. And then he goes on to say, every Methodist must do no harm, do good, attend to all the means of grace, the ordinances of God. But listen carefully to the final paragraph, which I want to quote in length to you. This is what Wesley writes, These are the general rules of our society, all of which we are taught of God to observe, even in His written word, which is the only rule and the sufficient rule, both of our faith and practice. And all these we know His Spirit writes on truly awakened hearts. If there be among us who observe them not, habitually break any of them, we will admonish him of the error of his ways. We will bear with him for a season. But then, if he repents not, he has no more place among us. We have delivered our own souls. So Wesley was very conscious that people had this propensity to fall away from God. That is the primary reason why Wesley got people into small groups to hold everyone accountable and to encourage each other to grow spiritually. So therefore, as good Methodists, let us take our salvation very seriously. Let our cell groups be the kind of you know, Christian fellowship where we truly watch over one another in love and also godly fear, not merely filled with hate knowledge, but really walking the talk where our lives bear the fruits of what our mouth says when we confess our sins. <clears throat> Now moving on, as I said earlier, there are many similarities between Luke chapter 13 and chapter 14. Luke chapter 13 and 14 both begin with a healing account. And then Jesus tells two parables. And then finally, Jesus calls us in Luke 13 to enter through the narrow door, and in Luke 14, basically to forsake everything to follow Christ. So you see this diagram on the screen. These are the parallels between Luke chapter 13 and chapter 14. First of all, let's examine the parable of the mustard seed. It, also, it emphasizes smallness, how this small little seed actually is so significant. In the same way, the parable of the dining table, Jesus also teaches us to remain small, but not literally, figuratively in being humble. Verse 8, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited, if so, the host who invited both you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, and then you are humiliated, you have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So again, we see this upside-down kingdom value at work. But here Jesus wasn't teaching so much about a real wedding dinner, especially in Singapore, you know, where we are designated seats for our wedding dinner, even before COVID. Rather, Jesus is really saying this, stay humble on earth. Stay humble on earth, and when you get to the heavenly banquet, God will honor you and promote you. So we may be small and insignificant like a mustard seed now, but one day, the promise of God is that we'll be part of God's kingdom, this magnificent tree. And therefore, point number three for today's sermon is this. Jesus makes no apologies in calling for humility. Jesus makes no apologies in calling for humility. 
And then Jesus goes on and teaches about the parables of East and the Great Banquet. If the earlier parables were about humility, these two parables focus on the paradoxical impact of extension. The East, though it's just a little portion, it can extend throughout the dough. Let us now examine also the parable of the Great Banquet, where you will see there is a great extension, just not in the way we typically expect. Verse 15, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat and feast at the kingdom of God. Then Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who have been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a few. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Verse 23, Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, like what we practice here in Singapore for many Chinese weddings, there's essentially a pre-invitation list that first goes out to the wedding guests. Suppose, you know, a wedding is scheduled for 21st January 2021. The invitation would have gone out by now, the first invitation, maybe calling for guests to RSVP by 1st December, something like that. Likewise, in those days, there will be two invites. The first invite goes out earlier, much earlier, calling for people to indicate their response and in the first invite, you are free to say yes or no. That's fine. But on the wedding feast itself, that's when the second invite goes forth to those who have earlier committed to say yes, that they'll be attending. This second invite goes out to them. And it's in this context that the three guests had earlier said yes, that suddenly they decided to make excuses, which is why the wedding master was so furious because they had made excuses at the last minute. The three guests in this parable, they all made excuses. They sent last-minute apologies. Now, I want you to know it's certainly not wrong to get married or buy a few, you know, or buy oxen. It's about livelihood. These are not wrong in themselves. But what really got the master irate was that they sent the apologies at the very last minute. What about us? Are we making any apologies for our failure to follow Christ? Like we were first promised? Are we sending our apologies now? Whereas in the first place we said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you. But now I say my apologies. In a surprising twist, God as the wedding master turns his anger into an extension of grace to those who were not originally invited to the feast. People in the streets. Anyone in the streets, in fact, and beyond can now come to the wedding feast. So this parable is both a warning as well as an extension of grace. For those who make an apology and fail to respond to God's grace for whatever reason, don't be surprised when God makes no apologies in turning you away and extending that grace to someone who is undeserving instead.
In short, when we say no to God, don't be surprised when God says no in return and says yes to others instead. Of course, in its original context, Jesus was using this parable as an indictment against the Pharisees that they will not taste of the wedding feast. But Jesus is also warning all of us today, don't ever take things for granted in our covenant agreement with God. I do have to point out, however, that God does not delight in turning us away. Yes, God will say no to us because we have said no to Him, but it is not in His heart to delight to turn us away. Sandwiched between the parallel accounts of Luke chapter 13 and Luke chapter 14 is Jesus' lament and cries over Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers its cheeks. See, God actually weeps when He has to say no to us, but only because we have said no to Him in the first place. And so if there be an overarching message for all of us in this Kingdom of God series, it is simply this. Entry and continuation in the Kingdom of God is not automatic. Entry and continuation in the Kingdom of God is not automatic. We must constantly choose to be a part of God's kingdom every single day of our lives, living a lifestyle of ready repentance and constant humility. We are not always repenting, but we are living a life of ready repentance, ready to acknowledge our sins whenever God's Holy Spirit convicts us. We are not always repenting because there is kingdom joy. There's joy in the kingdom of God. But we are ready to repent, to change our minds, to renew our minds. That's the Greek word metanoia for repentance, it really means to renew our minds. Whenever God reveals some things to us, we change our mind to follow His ways. So, entry and continuation in God's kingdom is not automatic. And then we come to Luke chapter 14, verse 25, where Jesus no longer merely addresses the religious leaders. Here He challenges the entire multitude. Verse 26, If anyone comes to me, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't he first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, then everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build, wasn't able to finish. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now the hatred that Jesus talks about here in this passage is not actual hatred, but it is used as a superlative comparison that our allegiance and our commitment to God must be so high that any other commitments we have in our lives pale far in comparison. Now, we know it's not actual hatred because God commands us to love, to love our neighbors as ourselves. God is love and we are called to love. And so God cannot really be asking us to hate someone. But what Jesus is really asking for here is total allegiance total allegiance. You see, we are called even to hate 
even our own lives. Verse 26. And then we are called to carry our cross. That tells us that even our own lives, we shouldn't even be committed to our own lives as much as we are committed to Christ. And then Jesus illustrates the cause of discipleship using two examples. First, the building of a tower. And then second, a king going to war. Now, who is the one counting the cost? Who is the one really counting the cost? In our self-absorbed minds, we think that Jesus is asking us to count the cost of discipleship, whether we have you know, enough money to build the tower or even troops to fight the war. In reality, Jesus is the one counting the cost. He is the one building the tower. He is the king who is raising his army. He is the one who is really counting the cost. He is the one who is demanding total allegiance because Jesus will not want to be ridiculed and certainly he will not want to be defeated. And that's why Jesus concludes by saying, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It is Jesus who is making the demand of complete and total allegiance. Now friends, as much as I love you, I have no authority to alter God's demands. But in a paradoxical way, because I love you, I extend God's words of truth to you. That Jesus, point number four for today's sermon, Jesus makes no apologies in demanding total allegiance. Recently, I'm journeying with someone who is wrestling, you know, whether to be a Christian or not. Because of the demands of Christ, he reads the Bible, he says, wow, it's so difficult to be a Christian. And I say to him, yes, please take all the time you need to wrestle. Don't become a Christian thinking that all is going to be smooth and easy and nice. I also told him, yes, for myself, it's been a great journey to follow Christ. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I will always choose to follow Christ. But for you, at this stage, when you're still exploring Please weigh carefully, hear carefully the demands of Jesus. Don't make empty promises that you cannot fulfill. Now, some of you who hear this message might also be wrestling whether you want to be a Christian or not. I want to encourage you with the words of Jim Elliot, the missionary whose death eventually converted an entire village. This is what he says. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me repeat. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Our King Jesus is the very first one to count the cost and give it all up. He was God. He was with God. Yet he gave it all up, humbled himself even to the point of humiliating death on the cross. Some scholars say that you don't say that Jesus died naked, crucified naked. How humiliating is that? And so Jesus is not asking us to do something that he did not do in the first place. He experienced humiliation, poverty, abandonment, emptiness, death, and even separation from God the Father. All for our sakes. He made no excuses. He sent no apologies. He suffered and died at the very hands of those he loved and created. And so if we truly sit down to count the cost, we realize that Jesus has paid the highest cost. And what he has paid, the price he has paid is way higher than any of us could ever pay or repay. 
Let me now close by returning to the start of Luke chapter 14, where Jesus healed the man with edema, which is a condition of swelling of the body due to water. So verse 1, chapter 14, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Then in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees, the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, the Pharisees, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And the Pharisees had nothing to say. As your pastor, you know I've been trying to push the ministry of supernatural healing in our midst. Almost always, after every healing service, I receive a text or email from someone who raises questions of why we have healing services. The questions usually go along the lines of, what if someone isn't healed? Aren't you giving people false hope? Why don't you talk about instances where people aren't healed? Can you not be more sensitive to people who are suffering or have loved ones who have passed on despite all the prayers? Now, dear family and really friends of Amokyo Methodist Church, hear my heart. I'm not against anyone who has uh, raised these questions. I love you in the Lord, but because I love you, I think it's in my position as spiritual authority to also speak the truth in love, just as I correct my children whom I love. Let me ask all of you, do I not conduct wakes and funerals more than any of you? Do I not see the deaths even of infants and young children? Am I not painfully aware and journey alongside those who battle against cancer and sometimes repeatedly against all kinds of afflictions, infirmities? Do I not journey alongside all who have lost a loved one? I am not naive or ignorant of these realities. In fact, I would say I see all of them more than you. And honestly, it's a lot easier for me not to pursue supernatural healing. Then I don't have to answer questions, you know, after every healing service. And certainly, I'm not someone who likes to call controversies. You know, I also welcome a life without criticisms, you know. But when I read the Bible, I'm confronted with the very truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And one third of Jesus' ministry revolves around healing. How then can I say I follow Christ or I preach Christ if I ignore one third of his ministry example? In view of the lack of time, I just want to state very quickly three reasons why I pressed on in this ministry of supernatural healing. Though there are times they are very challenging, I have no answers to. Number one, the ministry of healing requires faith. And faith is the most important dimension of a Christian's life. Let me say that again. The ministry of healing requires faith. But more, in that, more than that, faith is the most important dimension of a Christian's life. In the past week, just as I prepared this sermon, I was reading Hebrews chapter 11. I'm reminded that the most important world we live in is the unseen world, and the most important commodity in this unseen world is faith. I told my staff uh, some weeks ago, actually it's very easy to do church without God. After 11 years as a pastor, I can preach a sermon, I can organize activities, I can do church without God. I have developed sufficient skill sets over the years. But I know that is not right. How can the pastor not live by faith? 
And in the ministry of healing, I have to say, that's where faith is always exercised. That's when I'm always an infant. I'm forever forced to depend on God through faith. No matter how many healing cases I've ministered to over the years, no matter how many healing testimonies I witness, I will always still require faith. Faith because it is never my human effort. It is purely putting my trust in God, the work of Christ on the cross through faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, a very short but powerful verse, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know about you, but at the end of the day, I'd rather be someone to be known as someone who exercised too much faith than someone who exercised too little faith. Because I know that what really matters at the end of the day is not what human beings say about me, but what God says about me. When I stand before Him on the judgment throne, am I able to say I have lived by faith or am I living by sight? Oh, these are all incurable. That's what sight tells me. Or am I going to say I'm living by faith? Yes, I know it's incurable, but I believe, Lord, you are the God of the impossibles. To be fair, as Hebrews chapter 11 records, walking by faith does not mean that life will always be smooth sailing. If you read the entire chapter, yes, it, be it begins with many heroes, heroines, people of faith who walk victoriously. But as you end towards that chapter, you will recognize that there were also many others who gave up their lives and suffered for God despite their faith. And so in all the instances, the author of Hebrews says this, everyone was commended for their faith. Whether they received the tangible rewards of their faith on earth or not, they were all commended because they had faith. In the same way, I want to encourage all of us to always walk by faith, whether we are healed or not. For those who are healed, yes, we praise God when we see tangible results of faith healing. For others, we continue to praise God for their unwavering faith in the midst of trials and afflictions. The second reason why I continue to press on in the, net, in the ministry of supernatural healing is because it is a tangible sign of the kingdom of God. Healing is a tangible sign of the kingdom of God. When Jesus inaugurated the entry of the kingdom of God with his incarnation and ministry, he did so with many signs and wonders, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, even raising the dead. And so my question to all of us is this, has God's kingdom stopped advancing? Has God's kingdom ever stopped advancing? If the answer is no, then why should we not be a part of God's advancing kingdom? When this kingdom brings healing, freedom, deliverance. I don't want to be like one of those three men, you know, who gave excuses, sent apologies at the last minute, the most crucial hour of the wedding feast. Neither do I want to be seen as Jesus by Jesus as someone who is unreliable. This soldier cannot be depended on. When I sign up to be a Christian, I sign up for the whole package. I don't get to choose what I like or what I don't. My whole life belongs to the king. And if the kingdom is advancing, I want to be a part of it. You know what was my secret prayer when I went away for studies back in 2016, 2017? My secret prayer was this. God, please don't let me miss out on whatever you want to do in Singapore. God, please don't let me miss out because I want to be a part of it and if you're sending revival, let me be a part of it. Last Wednesday, 18th of November, a small group of staff, we gathered for our class meeting. There, Pastor May, Mei Ming, saw an image of two armies at war 
and I was leading God's army in the front, holding up a banner with the image of, of the cross on it. On our church anniversary, I sounded the clarion call to assemble. Four in, two be counted. Remember, 42 years old this year, Amokyo Church. So we fall in, we assemble to be counted, ready to be part of God's army. But I believe now God is calling us one step further, not just to assemble, but begin to advance. Number three, the third personal reason why I pressed on in this ministry of supernatural healing is because love compels me. Love compels me. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I've witnessed many healing miracles. I know God is good and powerful and desires to heal. Now put yourself in my position. Knowing that you have witnessed the miracles of God, knowing that you have the best treasure, the gospel, the power of Christ living in us, given to us through the Holy Spirit, how can I keep it to myself? When I see someone in pain, love compels me to go forward and pray for their healing. Whether they are healed or not is not within my control. But the loving thing for me to do is to try. That's why Jesus says, ask the Pharisees, if you see your child falling into a well on the Sabbath day, why won't you try to rescue him? Won't you pull him out? From God's point of view, everyone is a child of God. Yes, some are extremely wayward and prodigal, which you will see there in Luke chapter 15, but still, they are children of God. And so when God's love fills my heart, fills my heart, how can I stand aloof and keep this wonderful treasure to myself? Love compels me to act. It may also be helpful to perceive this, the situation in another way. Suppose someone is critically ill. If you do nothing, the person will pass away anyway. What harm there is there then to pray for God's divine intervention? In all cases, if we do nothing, we just throw our arms and do nothing, they will continue the decline towards death. There is really nothing to lose then if we try to do something. In fact, there is a lot of potential gain. In fact, even when there's no healing, I tell the prime ministers, at least the recipient receives a tangible expression of God's love when we pray for them. Love compels us to act. As a member of God's kingdom, I constantly remind myself, it's not about me, it's all about God's agenda, God's kingdom. If I pray for someone and that person isn't healed, it's okay. I'm a nobody. I just try to embody God's kingdom value of humility. It makes us me humble. I press in, I seek God's face more to press in for greater healings and miracles. But if that person is healed, I immediately give glory to God and I continue to press on to advance God's kingdom. And so these three reasons can be aptly summarized in three simple words. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. I live a life of faith by putting myself in a position where faith is required, for we walk by faith and not by sight. I put myself in a position of hope. I live a life of hope because I trust in a God who can vastly change the dire situation. And I live a life of love by physically being there to pray for that person, whether the person is here or not, I'm being that channel of God's love. So you ask me, why do I press on in the ministry of supernatural healing, even though I know the realities of life, perhaps better than most of us do? It's because it, this tree, faith, hope, and love, 
exercise in the ministry of healing. Let us return once again to Luke chapter 14 where Jesus asked the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? To paraphrase the question, Is it lawful to have healing services or not? The Pharisees refused to answer the question. Look at what Jesus did. He makes no apologies, and this is point number five for today's sermon. Jesus makes no apologies for extending healing. He simply healed the man and sent him away. So likewise, I follow Jesus' example, I press on. Let me summarize today's sermon before I end with a quick testimony. Point number one, Jesus makes no apologies in asking for repentance. Point number two, Jesus makes no apologies in expecting us to bear fruits in keeping with our repentance. Point number three, Jesus makes no apologies in calling us to live in humility. Point number four, Jesus makes no apologies in demanding total allegiance to him and his agenda. And point number five, Jesus makes no apologies in extending healing. One of our pastoral team members made a visit to one of our shut-ins uh, homebound earlier this month. The lady's left foot was aching, unable to walk properly, even with a regular walking aid. The foot, you know, twists to one side as she walks. This is what the daughter says. So the pastoral team member prayed for her, and she said she felt a warmth around her foot. Soon after, to cut the long story short, she was able to walk properly again, of course still with the walking aid, but at least her foot no longer is twisted. Now, I share this testimony because God's gift of healing is not limited only to pastors. If we are Christians, it's available for all of us because it's not about us. It's about Jesus who has done the work on the cross. We need to shift away from this mentality that only a few people can minister healing. It is Jesus who does the work of healing. It is Jesus who saves. And therefore, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall we heal? Jesus made no apologies. Will you be sending in your apologies? I hope not. May God's power, uh, spirit empower us to walk in faith, hope, and love. Come, let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. It's not an easy word to digest, even harder word to obey. Father, I want to pray against every mindset that is opposed against Christ. Father, we want to break down every stronghold in Jesus' name. Father, we ask for a renewing of our minds. Father, I ask that, Lord, you bind us together as the body of Christ. That, Lord, that there be no uh, divisive thought or conflict in our midst. That together we may be united to advance your kingdom. Lord, there are so many people out there who need to hear the gospel and to receive a touch of your healing. So, Father, we pray. You make us channels of not just of your love, but also of your power, of your healing power. Father, we want to pray for all who need healing in one form or another today. The Lord, you will heal them because God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen.